fairy tales, children's stories about magical and imaginary beings and lands, often the first lens we give young minds to view the world they live in. Many assume these are fictional stories to be taken lightly, but what if there is more to them? This is a podcast where we'll tell you some myths and tales that you thought you knew, and we'll show you how they are connected to real-life crimes today. This is Scary Tales, where the stories of your childhood meet real-life horror. We'll discuss how the light and happy tales of youth actually have a darker history to them. We'll also discuss true crime today and some of the eerie connections they have to the myths and legends of yesterday. Tune in for a new tale every other Tuesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you stream your podcast. Hello. It's me. <laughs> now anytime anyone says anything like that, I only can think of. Um, it's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. You know, Taylor Swift's new song. Anyway, it's just it's just me here. If you can't tell, it's Lacey. And we were late on the episode last week and then over new year's chase got the flu so that kind of put push things back and then this week hannah and i were supposed to meet and then she was unable so i didn't want to prolong the episode coming out any longer because i'm sure you're just all you know like on the edge of your seat but uh, <laughs> i thought you wouldn't mind if it were just me this week wanted to get some material out so but happy new year everybody 2023 thanks for sticking around for this long and it would have been nice if we would have had this episode earlier so you could have celebrated New Year's Eve with this knowledge, but you'll just have to bestow it upon your friends next year, sitting around the the whole proverbial ball drop and uh, sipping your champagne. What am I talking about? Today, I thought I would bring you a tiny tale and thought we'd discuss Father Time and Baby New Year. Now, if you're like me, I kind of forgot that these folklore beings even existed. It's not something we really celebrate around here. Uh, Apparently, we'll get to this later in Texas, they do, and and New York and things, but uh, not here in Alabama. So if you had forgotten like I did, I thought I would refresh your memory about Father Time and Baby New Year and give you a little, because, you know, it, it, it is a little dark in places, but that's what we do here on Scary Tales. So I'm sorry that it's just me. I'm looking at Hannah's chair. It's very sad. But next week, we'll be back with vengeance. And it'll be so good, I promise. Okay, anyway, so here we go. The ringing of the new year marks the arrival of Father Time, who takes away the old year. And he is often depicted as a cloak-wearing, bearded old man who carries a scythe and an hourglass. So basically, Gandalf mixed with like the grim reaper is how i imagine it (laughs) so sometimes he is accompanied by a crow but oftentimes his companion is baby new year himself and his arrival marks an end of time and sometimes even the death of an era so you can see kind of the parallels between him and the grim reaper to me the grim reaper while the grim reaper is the god of death or be or whatever folklore being of death father time is just solely like all he cares about is watching the time and making sure everything is like in a row you know what i mean so it is believed that father time is the embodiment of the ancient greek deity chronos now this can get confusing because here i'm talking about chronos spelt c-h-r-o-n-o-s 
and he is not to be confused with the Titan god Kronos, which is spelled with either a K or a C R O N O S, not with an H. So Kronos, C H R O N O S, is depicted as a winged serpent with additional heads of a bull and a lion, and he is the primordial god of time. And as it relates to time, you might say, why? Why is he a serpent? Well, serpents are ancient symbols of eternity, because if you think about it, there's the habits snakes have of sloughing off their old skin and then growing their new skin. So it can kind of represent this renewing of youth. You get the idea. And the Romans, much like even historians today, they were confused over the two different Kronos people. So they kind of just combined them both mashed them together and gave us the god Saturn, which you might be more familiar with. Saturn, like Kronos, carried a scythe or sickle as well, and he ruled over agriculture and time. And those two things kind of go together in my mind because agriculture or harvest, the seasons, it, it involves time, right? You have to harvest at the right time of year, so the math checks out there for me. Well, I'm so out of breath and just side note, this is my second time recording this and Chase went to edit it and the audio was not working. So I've already done this once if my voice sounds hoarse and if I sound out of breath. Nevertheless, the Romans took Kronos. Uh, oh, I already said that. Excuse me. So they took him, mashed him together, gave us Saturn. And then during the Renaissance era, Father Time emerged as the keeper of time passage and our modern image of him was formed. So he carries with him a scythe, which symbolizes the cutting down of time. He also has a timepiece, which is the hourglass, which symbolizes the constant time of flow, or excuse me, the constant flow of time forward. We all, it's to me, and when I think of hourglass, I think of like, I got 30 seconds on the clock at a game of like taboo or something or scattergories, but here it's, it's a more positive image. So it was once believed that we each have our own hourglass that is kept by Father Time. And when our, quote, proverbial time is up and we have come to the end of our life on Earth, he comes to collect. And I can just see, my mind goes to, that's a lot of hourglasses. They're probably made out of metal. And he's, I bet his pants are just (laughs) sagging to the floor if he's even wearing pants. God bless him, Father Time. So some cultures believe Father Time works alone and he gathers the years as they expire, but others believe that Father Time and Baby New Year are one and the same. They're the same entity. As the old year expires, Father Time collects it as it passes, or excuse me, and passes it a new year to the baby to hold guardianship over and bring to maturity. But as the baby progresses, uh, or as the year progresses, so does the baby to become the next incarnation of Father Time, who then hands off that next new year to a new baby, and then thus the cycle continues. So you have these one group of people that think he's the same person. My problem with that is, how does a baby grow into an old man in the span of a year? But then I guess you can say he's Father Time, he can manipulate time any way you want. The other idea I have there is, how is it an endless cycle? So you get to the end of the year, and he's a old man. He just turns back into a baby. Uh, that's confusing to me. So the other school of thought is that these are two different 
entities and but they work together so this idea would be that the father time collects the old decayed era and that and that has come to an end and then the baby brings the new fresh era i don't know where they're getting all these babies but nevertheless that's how this system works that's how we get a new year every year everybody so baby new year has been in existence since roughly 600 BC. That's before Christ. And I'm sorry, I'm in such, I'm in such a weird mood because this is getting late at my house and I've already done this once, but it's been around a long time. And it came about originally in ancient Greece as most strange things do. Every year the Greeks celebrated Dionysus, I looked up how to pronounce this right before I clicked record and my brain already threw it out the window. You know that episode of Spongebob where he's like, it, they look into his brain and it's like the personification of himself and they're look, he's looking for a certain word in his brain and they're like a bunch of Spongebobs running around in his brain and like they look like they're in an office and they're <laughs> throwing paper out of the file cabinets. That's what's happening on the inside of my brain right now, if that makes any sense. But in, anyway, so they celebrate this Dionysus, who is the god of wine and fertility, and this celebration would include parading a baby through the streets in a basket, which represented this woman's birth or this god's goddess's birth. And the babe's image was then carried over into Christianity where we get baby jesus also baby jesus was put in a basket and got the whole, i'm not baby jesus oh my lord moses uh, so i see some similarities there so the greeks they had dionysus and and her baby in a basket and the christians have baby jesus so the custom of the baby new year was practiced by germans specifically they they thought that was a great idea and then this carried over to America through just natural migration. The modern image of Baby New Year, if you haven't seen him, he now sports a top hat, kind of like the guy in Monopoly, the Monopoly guy. He also wears a banner sash with the year he is custodian over tied across his chest. I'm so out of breath. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. It was the Victorians, however... We did a whole episode on them. You should go listen. They're just some crazy guys. It is their fascination of dressing children like adults who are responsible for Baby New Year's fashionable top hat. Victorians did a lot of weird stuff. A lot of odd things involving children. I highly recommend you go listen to that episode and then this will make more sense. But And now I'm losing my voice. Hold on. <coughs> so it's not all doom and gloom because Father Time also represents wisdom right because there's wisdom that comes from age and living life and the hourglass can always be turned over which represents an opportunity to start anew so that's exciting there is one duty of father times however that most people don't know or realize or have even considered and that is his close friendship with the one and only santa claus you might be familiar with this if you watch i don't think he's in santa claus one with tim allen maybe father time is in the second one correct me if i'm wrong but father time character is in those movies because i know we've all when we were you know young and sat around and tried to think of how in the world santa claus visits every child on the face of the earth in one night and delivers presents if you're a harry potter fan you might think He's probably got Hermione's turn, uh, time turner. 
other people believe he's just in cahoots with old father time they have a symbiotic relationship and they're just you know i don't know what father time gets out of it maybe he gets something more than coal who knows so someone else who also just really loves this father time and baby new year situation is the one and only willie nelson every year he hosts a new year's eve concert in austin and it features cameos by baby new year and father texas time at midlight at midnight a dreadlocked father time with a makes a grand entrance and he's wearing a long robe and a crown of yellow roses and he gets lower to the stage typically in a texas themed carriage and hands over a prop hourglass to baby new year who is normally a youngster in a white tux and top hat so father times they do it differently each year but specifically in 2015 he came down from the rafters riding nothing but a metallic armadillo and i don't know what sounds more american than that so there you go the baby new year idea eventually developed into a firstborn tradition as well so many towns and cities hospitals have instituted contests awarding the first baby boy not baby boy that would be (laughs) oh goodness just any baby born at the new year they award them the name baby new year and such children are often the subject of local news coverage and i'm sure you've seen them they get their picture in the newspaper because they need something because being born on a holiday especially one so close to christmas is not the best i would know my birthday is normally on memorial day or around memorial day and all the kids were gone on vacation for my birthday parties so if, if you had to be born on new year's being in the newspaper isn't a bad way to go but yeah so uh, like i said this was a tiny tale i don't have there's not that much out there on father time and baby new year's kind of self-explanatory but next year when you're around the um like i said the old fireplace and you're drinking champagne you can share with your friends the uh, history of father time and baby new year so now it's the true crime portion of the show normally we would have a snack break right here but i figured you didn't want me to review a snack on my own so i did try white (laughs) i'm just sitting in here talking to myself I did try white strawberries this week, or pine berries, and they're supposed to taste like pineapples, but they kind of just taste like unripened strawberries, and you can get them at Costco if you're interested in that, so there you go, tiny, tiny tail, tiny snack break. Now, I was kind of, didn't know what to do for the true crime portion of today's episode, because normally, you know, we like to relate it back to the folklore portion of the show. So what I found was a family massacre that occurred on New Year's Eve. So in 2017, the Kaloji family were enjoying a relaxing night at home, bringing in the New Year together. But as the ball began to drop and the clock struck 12, mass chaos ensued within the household. So backing up a little bit, Scott Kaloji was born in 2001 to parents Stephen and Linda, He had two other siblings, Brittany and Stephen Jr., and Scott was the baby of the family. Linda also had a child from a previous marriage, Jonathan Ruiz, who will come into play later. So at the time of the murders, Jonathan was 26, Stephen Jr. was 19, Brittany is 18, and Scott is just 16 years old. So 
They lived in Long Branch, New Jersey, which is a part of the Jersey Shore. I wonder how Snooki is doing these days. I think they all have children now. Anyway, the family home was at 635 Wall Street, and the grandparents also lived with the family. Uh, Stephen's parents, uh, Stephen Sr.'s parents, Adrian Kologi, and his life partner, Mary Ann Schultz. Mary Ann, her and Adrian were not married, but they did consider Mary Ann their grandmother. The family was known for being close-knit, and their house was often a hangout spot in the community. They were known for having family barbecues, and the family was also spent was also seen spending time together playing games watching movies they took lots of trips to the beach and played basketball in the backyard of the family home so nothing odd there even after the murders took place nobody came back and said oh i you know hindsight's 2020 but i remember thinking that there was something off with those people linda um Sorry, Stephen Sr. worked as a truck driver for the Kellogg Company and coached baseball on the side. And baseball was something that he and the boys bonded over. Linda worked part-time as a bus driver for the public school system. So these jobs did not make them a whole lot of money, and the family did struggle financially. They filed for bankruptcy in 2009 and were deep in credit card debt and i believe at the time of the murders the house was either foreclosed on or was being foreclosed on so there was a lot of what you would imagine be as stress going on as most people who struggle financially have a lot of stress in their life but again nobody said that they noticed anything out of place with the family so scott kologi was diagnosed with high-functioning autism, and his mother, Linda, was his main caregiver. I don't know if she was part-time still doing the school bus driving and seeing to him on the side, but Scott was not doing well in public school, and she eventually had to take him out and homeschool him, so she was his full-time caregiver. Some articles I read reported that Scott suffered from hallucinations as a child, And I don't know if this was ever specifically seen about. I assume if he had the diagnosis of autism, he was seeing a doctor about that. And they would most likely know about the hallucinations, but that cannot be confirmed. So here we are on Sunday, December 31st, 2017, not that long ago. The family had gathered at the home to spend time together, and everyone is there at the time of the murders except for Jonathan, the eldest boy. Um, Even Stephen Jr.'s girlfriend was there. So minutes before midnight, Scott went upstairs. He put on a leather jacket and sunglasses, which anything like anytime somebody describes a leather jacket, I just think about Columbine and then he puts on the dark sunglasses so that's just very sinister sounding to me but he then loaded his brother's assault rifle with 30 bullets he put in earplugs to not hurt his ears he turned off the lights and then he hid in his room because he knew you know the ball's about to drop his mother's going to be looking around the room wondering where he is she's going to come up looking for him so he hides in his room and around 11 43 his mother came and looked for him. As soon as she entered the room, Scott shot her four times in the head, which killed her instantly. And his father obviously hears what's going on, hears the gunshots, 
and runs upstairs to see what was going on, and he was also shot immediately in the back and torso. Then Scott steps over his parents' body and walks calmly downstairs into the kitchen, where he then shoots his 70-year-old grandmother, Mary Schultz, four times. He then sees Brittany, his sister, sitting at the kitchen counter, and he shoots her in the chest three times, killing her as well. So Scott's grandfather, Adrian, he also hears what's going on, runs in the kitchen and sees the love of his life, Mary, who was deceased, which caused him to drop to his knees in grief, and he is just wailing. And this is actually what snaps Scott out of it and makes him stop shooting or stops the shooting rampage. The others that were in the house were able to escape and run outside where they called the police who arrived within just one minute after the phone calls were made. And when they arrived, Scott was there and surrendered immediately. When he was arrested, he was charged as a youth and therefore a gag order was placed on the case. There's lots of restrictions there. Nobody can talk about it. And his public defender attempted to have him placed in a psychiatric facility, but the judge denied that request. And after about a year of family court proceedings, the judge decided to escalate the case and charge Scott as an adult, just based off the severity of what he, of the crime he had committed. So with both of his parents now deceased, Scott didn't have a legal guardian and you have to have a legal guardian to be interviewed by the police. So Stephen Jr., the the older brother, still a teenager, but still the older brother, that had just watched his younger brother annihilate his family, he has to step into this role and he had to be present for all of the initial police interviews and he was able to keep his composure sitting at the interview table until Scott stepped out of the room. And at that point, Stephen Jr. just started screaming and he even threw a cup at the wall. So Scott said in his police interview, quote, when everything was happening, I felt like I was watching it, like I was further back in my mind. He then said, I just kept firing until they like stopped moving. He told police that he had previously watched YouTube videos on how to use a gun so that puts that he, there was forethought into this. The police also found out that Scott had searched what type of bullets would pierce a bulletproof vest, which alludes to the fact that he was prepared to shoot the police had they had he still been on this rampage when they arrived. Scott would go on to say, I knew I was doing it. It just felt like it wasn't me. Then the detective asked him, but yet you knew what you were doing. And he said, yes. And she said, were you hearing any voices, seeing things when this happened? To which he replied, no. She then said, did you hear any voices that said to do it? Visions commanding you to do it? And Scott said, no. She said, did you ever think of killing someone else? To which he did reply, yes, which is terrifying. And she said, what stopped you from doing it? And he said, I don't know, way too tired. I doubt I'd do it again, but I'm not sure. So that right there, for him being released back into society, he would have to get some major help. So she says, you seem like a smart guy. You know what you did. You're not a dummy. And he says, yes. So to recap that, he's saying, I wasn't coerced into doing this. I wasn't hearing voices. I did it on my own accord. It just, 
I felt a little off. It didn't feel like me doing it, but I knew that I was doing it. So the trial started on February 9th, 2022, and ended on February 24th, 2022. So very recently. And during the trial, it was revealed that Kaloji, you know, had a half-brother. We talked about him earlier, Jonathan Ruiz, and he was brought to the stand. And he told the jury about how he considered Stephen Kaloji Sr. to be his father, even though he was not his biologically. Even though he had moved out of the Kaloji residence, Jonathan said he still visited often and was close with the family. He was actually at the Kaloji residence earlier in the day, visiting the family with his now wife, but she was his girlfriend at the time. And the couple spent a few hours with the family celebrating the new year. And at one point, Jonathan and his mother even left to go to Domino's just to get food specifically for Scott. Like that's all he wanted to eat that day was Domino's, which same. So he described the drive to be happy. He also described the mood that day to be happy. And he said there were no arguments and Scott seemed normal. He and his wife, however, left the party before the shooting began. So Scott's defense was that he was in a dissociative state when he shot his family. And to back this up, his legal guardian hired a psychologist. I don't know at this time if his legal guardian was still Stephen Jr., but nevertheless, whoever it was, they hired Dr. Maureen Santina, who told the jury that Scott had experienced a psychotic break and was in a dissociative state the day of the quadruple murder. And the defense also told the jury, though Scott committed the murders, he was insane when he did so. So there it is, the insanity plea. During the trial, Dr. Santina reported to the jury what Scott had told her he experienced on the night of the murders. He told her that he experienced hallucinations in the months leading up to the murders, which became more frequent and intense as time went on. He had also had experienced impulses to hurt others, and he said that he had told his mom, or excuse me, had told his mom about these intrusive thoughts, but his mom told him, hey, if you ignore them, they'll just go away. So who knows if that's true? But besides the impulses to hurt people, Scott became paranoid and believed that his family wanted to hurt him. In the week leading up to the murder, Scott stated that he was seeing a woman lying in his bed next to him, and the woman seemed to be human, but her eyes turned red and she had long, sharp teeth, and then her eyes would turn black as if she, or no, excuse me, her whole body, I guess, would turn black as if she was being burnt up. Okay, it's <laughs> very scary. And then on the morning of the murders, Scott had told Dr. Santina that he had, quote, felt off. And while in the shower, he heard a voice that stated, welcome to the side of evil. This is absolutely terrifying. And I, and I imagine it was terrifying for him, too, if he knew he had told his mom, I'm hearing these things, I'm feeling these things, I'm scared of how I'm feeling. And she didn't get him help. I don't know if that's true, but that would be a scary place to be in. So Dr. Santina told jurors she believes Kaloji was experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia, which can be seen in his interview with the police. He's looking around. He's just, he seems distracted. I don't know if that's by the voices in his head or just the situation. She then pointed out statements that Kaloji made immediately after the murders where he stated he was on, he felt like he was on autopilot and felt like he was watching a movie, which would kind of lend that, to the idea that he is in a dissociative state. 
She also told the jurors that she diagnosed him with early onset schizophrenia. Scott's half-brother, Jonathan, then got up and testified on the stand about his brother's mental illness, and he listed some examples to the jurors. He stated that his brother needed help with dressing, which the things he lists sounds more like problems that could be associated with his autism, like dressing. He might have difficulty with textures, things of that matter. He often, he said that Scott often slept in bed with his parents and he still believed in Santa Claus and Jonathan would have to help his mom wrap the gifts and then set them out as if Santa Claus came. So very adolescent mindset, it seems. The prosecution hired Dr. Park Dietz, who told the jury about Kaloji's mental state. He stated Kaloji was in fact not schizophrenic, but had an autism spectrum disorder. He explained that the hallucinations Scott was having the night of the murders would not warrant a diagnosis of schizophrenia because he only experienced them for a short time and not consistently, as someone with schizophrenia would. To that I say, there were reports that he had them when he was a child. There are children, unfortunately, that have schizophrenia. So it's just, which side do you believe? Dr. Dietz pointed out while Scott had been incarcerated, because he did, you know, was being held in prison, that the doctor at the prison had not felt it necessary to put him on any antipsychotic medication. So they're saying, like, even the doctor at the prison says he's fine. To that I say, I don't know how great the quality of mental health care you're getting in the prison system. But he also referenced the police interview after the murders, noting that when Scott was asked if he was experiencing paranoia, he said no. He also testified he believed that Scott had experienced numerous occasions where he felt bullied or mistreated, and he had been bullied in school. That's why his mom homeschooled him. But even if these interactions were insignificant, the list of wrongdoings gathered in his mind had built up, the tension had built up, and it's this tension that grew to be too much, and he had released it, resulting in the murders of his family. So after all of that, the testimonies had been completed. Scott was eventually found guilty of four counts of murder and one count of unlawfully having a weapon for the purpose of committing a crime. And on June 30th, 2022, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison. So that's the the newest, the most updated information I have. I know that several of his other family members had asked, could he be placed in a psychiatric facility? He needs mental health, not incarceration. I guess the ruling there was that he was sane. Even though he had this diagnosis of autism, it sounds like to me, and I'm not a psychiatrist, it sounds like he was schizophrenic. So I don't know. I'm leaning towards the fact of yes he he probably was not mentally there the time of the murders and that he could benefit from being placed in a psychiatric facility not a prison but maybe they know something i don't know but nevertheless it's a sad story from new year's eve hopefully all of your new year's eves were better than that i um we went to barnes and noble me and chase and pf chanks and uh that's what we did let us know in the comments on instagram scary tales podcast 
what you did on New Year's, your New Year's resolutions, what episodes you'll be looking forward to in the upcoming year. And Hannah will be back next week. I'm looking at her chair right now. There's nobody in it. It's really sad. (laughs) But anyways, Happy New Year. We love you guys. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.